Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 109, The Prophecies of Abinadi. Welcome, welcome. How are you doing? I hope you're doing good. I know that everyone is experiencing challenges. I still believe 2020 is working for us. And I don't say that lightly. We, My family, we have had some significant challenges, some tests of faith, faith that it's all going to work out. We too have been having to conquer our fears and to put our trust in God. Never before has my confidence in Him been stronger, though, despite the challenges, despite the hardships that we've endured. I hope you're doing good. I think about you. I hope that you tune in and use Sister Scriptorians as a way to regenerate, as a way to build your faith, as a way to work your faith. I hope you're going to sisterscriptorians.com. I hope you're downloading the ponder prompts. I hope that as you read the chapters that we're studying and then you listen to me and then you fill out those ponder prompts that are designed to liken the scriptures unto you personally. I hope that you are feeling emboldened, cared for, known, I hope that you can, when you're filling that out, I hope the Spirit is helping to testify very personal things to you. I still believe 2020 is working for us, but we've got to make it work for us. But I do believe that God is in the details. I believe that this is a pivot point, and I hope that here at Sister Scriptorians, you're finding support to do that. I hope this past week you were able to look at leaders in a new way. I believe Mormon preserved the record of Zenith and his people, not just to help us know what happened to this group of dissenters that left Zarahemla, and he preserved it not just to let us know the background of Alma, who we're going to meet in a little bit, who King Mosiah would eventually call to organize the church in Zarahemla, But I believe that one of the reasons that Mormon preserved this piece of history was to help us gain wisdom, to help us discern between righteous leadership, those that serve the people and they labor diligently on their behalf and who are a blessing and a benefit to their people, not a burden, versus a wicked leader who gives into lust sets his vision on material things and idol worship, who doesn't turn to God or adhere to God's commandments. You see, whether we accept God or not, that doesn't change the laws in which the universe and God's children are governed by. And we, like Noah, will be accountable to truth, whether we accept truth or not. So looking at a leader's moral compass and his vision and what he values and directs his attention towards and who he chooses to surround himself with are all parts of the wisdom we glean from these chapters. Mormon is helping us to learn how to discern so that we aren't deceived. Because quickly, very, very quickly, society can descend when wickedness reigns. 
It doesn't take as long as we think. And though we may not have perfect options or even very good ones, our goal should be to cultivate these leadership qualities in ourselves so that at the very least, we don't go over the cliff with the rest of society. And so apply these standards of evaluation, not only to your leaders, but to you, the leader of your home, the leader of your family, your sphere of influence, even if that just means you, which it never does, by the way. (laughs) You are always influencing others. But knowing your moral compass, your vision, what you value, and who you surround yourself with are all important components in drawing unto God and being able to hear Him. I hope you can see that connection. Because each and every one of them, if tweaked, can bring you closer to God. And once again, the tender mercies of the Lord are on display in the details of His children. He always gives us every chance to course correct. He puts up with our rebelliousness so patiently, being slow to anger, which is pretty remarkable because having two teenage sons, my patience (laughs) has been tested lately, noticing that I need to temper my anger and give them every chance to course correct or, you know, add a little bit more respect (laughs) into their tone. These are the baby lessons that I'm learning in the grand scheme of parenting. And I'm grateful for a father in heaven that I can look to as an example. So to see this in our father and and in his son, Jesus Christ, how they're always giving us sufficient warning, how they never give up on us. In fact, the Book of Mormon is proof of that. He never gives up on his children. And at this point in the Book of Mormon, the Lord in his mercy sends Abinadi. Who else besides me (laughs) believes that Abinadi deserves like a stadium announcer announcing his name with a stadium cheer for the role that he played in Nephite history, but more importantly, for preserving the doctrine that was being ignored at this time. In today's episode, we'll be highlighting the prophecies of Abinadi before he was captured by King Noah's guards and then imprisoned. We find these prophecies in Mosiah chapter 11, verse 20. So we'll start there and it'll take us to the end of that chapter, which then will go into chapter 12 to verse 17. So it's those sections of verses. And what I love about Abinadi is that he is bold. He is blunt. (laughs) He spoke with the plainness of Nephi. And next week, when we talk about how Abinadi answered some of the questions of the priests who were trying to be deceptive, I think Abinadi had quite a bit of spice in him as well. In Mosiah chapter 11, starting in verse 20, Abinadi is introduced as a man among the people. He didn't come from without. He was bred within. He came from within. Was he young? Was he old? Did he have a family? Did he have friends? Were there believers among the people? And was Abinadi one of their leaders? We don't know. But we know that Abinadi knew how to receive personal revelation, don't we? Revelation in which the Lord spoke to him very specifically on what to say and how to warn the people. 
and boldly with great confidence in his message and in who it came from, Abinadi went forth and spoke to his brethren the words of the Lord, exposing the Lord's mind on a few matters regarding his children. First, the Lord, through Abinadi, communicated with his children that he had seen their abominations and their wickedness and their whoredoms, and except they repent, he will visit them in his anger. He's warning them at this point. Now, truthfully, I sort of botched that up in retelling it. I find it worth noting. I find it really interesting to observe this, the way that Abinadi's words are recorded here, that Abinadi spoke in first person for the Lord. It is as if Abinadi stood up in front of the people and he said, the Lord spoke to me and these are his exact words he told me to tell you. Abinadi didn't soften his message with, if you sin, consequences are going to happen. He spoke directly, informing the people that their deeds, they were seen by God, and this is what God intends to do about it if you don't repent. Of course, with always the merciful hand reaching out, extending the repentance card to the people, and you just want to say, take the card, right? Take the card. Next, Abinadi relays to the people, again in first person, literally being the Lord's spokesman. What visiting them in my anger will look like for them. (laughs) I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. The God who they had once acknowledged as delivering them out of the hands of their enemies is now revealing his hand that if they don't course correct now, he will deliver them up. He's done with it. And not only that, but they shall be brought into bondage and they shall be afflicted by the hand of their enemies. Remember, The people of Nephi had actually driven the Lamanites out of their lands, and they had been lifted up in the pride of their hearts, boasting about their own strength. They bragged that their 50 could stand against thousands of the Lamanites. So to hear Abinadi speak for the Lord that they were no longer acknowledging, that they would be brought into bondage by the same enemy that they had just driven out, well, that must have really irritated them. Well, we know it did, but why? If someone were to say to me, I don't like your blue hair, I would think that they were a bit off because I very much don't have blue hair and their observation of me wouldn't matter much. I wouldn't be putting credit into what they were saying because I don't have blue hair and I know that. And I said it last week, That the response of the people leads me to consider that, one, the people still retained a remembrance of what they once knew regarding God. And there was a part of them that felt shame, that felt exposed by Abinadi's words. And maybe they felt called out on their pride. And that pride would not suffer them to acknowledge how far off they had drifted or they were past feeling. I just think it's interesting that Abinadi, at the very least, wasn't treated as the village lunatic. They put a lot of emotion and energy into what he was saying. He must have had some influence. He must have had a commanding presence or at least some respect to be seen as the threat that he was seen as. 
So the Lord is going to visit the people of King Noah in his anger, and he's going to deliver them up into the hands of their enemies, and they will be brought into bondage and afflicted because God wants them to know that he is a jealous God. Wait a second. That doesn't sound admirable, does it? If you're anything like me, you think of the ugly side of jealousy, the green-eyed monster, the unflattering, painful emotion that exposes our deep fears about our worth and also beliefs about our scarcity and being jealous or coveting or wanting what others have that we don't have. But when we look at the definition of the word jealous and consider all that God is, I think we can see the reasonableness of the Lord's description of himself. Jealous is defined as intolerant to rivalry or unfaithfulness and vigilant in guarding a possession. Is it possible from this definition that jealousy can actually be a godly trait? Of course, especially when exercised by God. Think about what you already know of him. God has already commanded us that we shall have no other gods before him, that we shall not make unto ourselves any graven image. Our devotions are not to be divided. God is intolerant to any rivalry or unfaithfulness and has in times past like with the children of Israel, shown that he won't share space with any man-made graven image. He just won't do it. It's not that he is fearful of our rejection or has abandonment issues or suffers from feelings of low self-worth or a fear of missing out on our love for him. It means that our devotions literally determine the degree of influence that we allow the Lord to have in our lives because he won't be second place. Does that make sense? When we are unfaithful to him, despite him being the upholder of all things, when we become not only unprofitable servants of him, but then deniers of his glory, he doesn't tolerate that. It actually sounds, when you think of it, rather self-respecting. It's actually a confident characteristic of his. He knows who he is and what value he offers his creations. He does not tolerate or stand beside anything that makes a mockery of his true divinity, his true glory, and his true power. And then you take the other segment of the definition, vigilant in guarding a possession, And you view this through a lens of mercy. It shows all that God will do. How vigilant he will be to guard his creations. How much he'll give. The lengths he will go to in order to give us every chance to repent. To change our minds. To change our knowledge. To change our hearts. And even our breath. And then, if we still choose an alternative path. Because of his attribute of jealousy, he will withdraw. Or rather, we withdraw from him, from his vigilance over us. He won't share space with our graven images and our heart's devotions that are anything but him or contrary to him. 
and he also won't have his power desecrated. He will guard that vigilantly as well. So the more I think about it, the more I really admire this attribute of his. He knows he's enough. And he knows that doesn't change despite the value that we choose to place on him. And look what God is able to do because he knows he's enough. Really, truly, it's a really great example for us of boundary setting, isn't it? And because he knows that he's enough, despite whether or not his children decide to give him credit or not, he is okay with setting the boundary that he sets with the people of King Noah. He makes it clear that once they are in bondage, none shall deliver them, except it be the Lord, the Almighty God. So this is why when King Limhi meets Ammon, and learns that he is from Zarahemla, this is why Limhi knew that the Lord would be delivering them. That this was their long-awaited miracle. This was the fulfillment of another prophecy of Abinadi's. And Limhi was ready. He had already seen the fulfillment of the others. And he was ready, even if it meant that it was going to require an effectual struggle on their part. In order to be able to be delivered completely, he was ready. The people were completely offended by Abinadi's prophecies. They were wroth and they tried to kill him, but the Lord delivered Abinadi out of their hands. Abinadi wasn't done yet. There was still much he had to say. But the people continued to dig in to their abominations and their wickedness. They continued to move towards sealing their fate of these prophecies being fulfilled. When Noah heard about the words of Abinadi, the pride of this man's heart is revealed in scripture. Listen to his superiority and even his manipulation as he responds to the reports of Abinadi's words. Who is Abinadi that I and my people should be judged of him? I wonder, Noah, why does Abinadi threaten you? I wonder, what pricked Noah's heart in which he saw some validity or threat, at least, in Abinadi's warnings? Noah also asked, Who is the Lord that shall bring upon my people such great afflictions? Really, Noah? Pretending not to know? Pretending as if your father never taught you the mysteries of God? Denying any knowledge of of who Abinadi might be referring to, and even denying the power that the Lord possesses, only shows the wickedness and the deceit that Noah flattered himself with and also flattered his people with. Noah desired to kill Abinadi. He desired to have Abinadi brought before him, even accusing Abinadi of false accusations that Abinadi was raising contentions among his people. Again, Why was Abinadi considered such a threat to them at this point? So after two years, Abinadi comes back in among the people, this time in disguise. The people didn't even recognize him, and he begins preaching again. This time, the message is slightly different. Before he prophesied that the Lord had seen their abominations, wickedness, and whoredoms, and except they repent, I will visit them in mine anger. 
This time it was, they have repented not of their evil doings. Therefore, I will visit them in my anger. Yea, in my fierce anger will I visit them in their iniquities and abominations. Time had run out. And then we have the descriptive prophecy of what the people were now to expect. The Lord's words will be fulfilled. For in this generation, one, they will be brought into bondage. So everyone who is hearing Abinadi's words will be brought into bondage. They will be smitten on the cheek, driven by men, and slain. And then a little more description Abinadi gives, the dogs, yea, and the wild beast shall devour their flesh. This is horrific. This is atrocity that is going to happen to these people. The life of King Noah shall be valued even as a garment in a hot furnace, for he shall know that I am the Lord. So there you go, Noah, wanting to know who this Lord was or who this God was. There you have it. You now have a prophecy that you are now going to know who the Lord is. I will smite this my people with sore afflictions, yea, with famine and with pestilence, and I will cause that they shall howl all the day long. And though this sounds dreadful, did you catch the Lord's wording? He added, my people. He could have said, I will smite this people with sore afflictions, but he added, my people. Hmm. Just let that sink into your heart for a second. Even though the Lord would be following through on the consequences of the people's choices, he wasn't denying them. He hadn't given up on them. He still claimed them. It's as if all of this is going to be done in order to save them and not to destroy them. In order to give them experience of how great his power can really be when he eventually will save them one day. Abinadi also prophesies that they shall have burdens lashed upon their backs and they shall be driven before like a dumb ass. The Lord says he will send forth hail among them and they shall also be smitten with the east wind and insects shall pester their lands also and devour their grain. And they shall be smitten with a great pestilence. All of these prophecies are what is now going to happen to this generation. Abinadi essentially gave the people a detailed checklist of the tribulations that they were going to face and experience, that they could check off one by one as they experienced it, teaching them who the Lord was. And then in verse 8, Abinadi explains that their destruction from off the face of the earth would occur if they did not repent. Nothing would be left of the people except their record that would testify to future generations of their abominations. So, as you can imagine, the people of Noah were not thrilled with Abinadi's words. But you know what's interesting? I think you could suppose that they didn't know it was Abinadi still. I'm just guessing, for in chapter 11, when the people went to Noah to complain and to alert him to Abinadi's teaching, King Noah stated, who is this Abinadi? So they introduced Abinadi to him. But this time, in verse 9, chapter 12, 
The people said unto the king, Behold, we have brought a man before thee who has prophesied evil concerning thy people. That must have been an awesome disguise. And after they relayed the prophecies of Abinadi, especially those concerning the king, we have a glimpse of the negative effects of flattering words. After reciting the harm that Abinadi prophesied would come unto King Noah, the people asked, And now, O king, what great evil hast thou done? Or what great sins have thy people committed, that we should be condemned of God or judged of this man? And now, O king, behold, we are guiltless. And thou, O king, hast not sinned? Therefore this man has lied concerning you, and he has prophesied in vain. And behold, we are strong. We shall not come into bondage or be taken captive by our enemies. Yea, and thou hast prospered in the land, and thou shalt also prosper. Behold, here is the man. We deliver him into thy hands. Thou mayest do with him as seemeth thee good. The effect of flattering words from a leader is that it makes the people he rules over sheep. Did you hear it in their response? First of all, because Noah and his priests had flattered the people and used vain words in speaking to the people, they had actually trained their people to flatter them and use vain words in response to them, removing the real and lacing everything with the false. Do you see how they, they can't take the warning? How easily they are offended? They say, what evil hast thou done? What great sins have thy people committed? Because of flattery, the people have lost their discernment for right or wrong, for an evil spirit or a righteous spirit. They can't tell the difference now. Their moral compass had changed. Their ability also to self-reflect or take a self-inventory, well, that's been eliminated. Isn't that what we need in order to be able to repent? We need to be able to recognize he speaks of I and take the steps to make amends with God. But because of flattery, the people of Noah only question the necessity of God's judgment upon them. The people, again, using flattery, they know how to work their king. Did you hear that? They know how to appeal to his vanity and to his pride. They set their king up to be in opposition to Abinadi. And thou, O king, hast not sinned. Therefore, this man has lied concerning you, and he has prophesied in vain. Noah's people, they're banking on his reactivity, easily manipulating him by appealing to his eat, drink, and be merry mentality. And therefore, they guided their king down the path of revenge-seeking. They set him up. Flattery had spoiled the kingdom into thinking that they were strong and couldn't possibly ever be brought into bondage. Instead of humility seeing their weakness and relying upon the Lord, or at least being teachable, the people didn't even consider the possibility of ever being brought into captivity. They didn't even see the necessity to take precautions, but only focused on the past prosperity of their king and mistakenly relied on that to protect them. So, learn, liken, and lift. Don't allow the adversary to flatter you in wasting away your opportunity of repentance. 
Don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Don't allow him to whisper to you that tomorrow is another day. Postponing the important work of repentance that allows you to sharpen your discernment and to remain in the strength of the Lord. And I encourage you to pause. Something that the people of Noah did not do. I encourage you to take a personal inventory of of where you can repent, where you can change your mind and change your direction, change your thoughts and change your breath. Even last week when you were completing the ponder prompt about your moral compass and your vision and about the people you surround yourself with and about your values, did anything prick your heart that seemed a little out of sorts or a discrepancy that was out of alignment with what you really were seeking for or what you really value and hold dear? Start there. Be still and reflect and then repent. I hope it's a sweet experience for you, one in which you can feel the love of God and then the creative power of your agency to go and create the joy that you've been missing out on. Don't remain in bondage and don't experience the affliction for one more moment than you need to. Abinadi spoke of repentance and the Lord delivered him out of the hands of the people the first time. The Lord then enabled Abinadi to come back again a second time, disguised well, so that his message could be amply communicated. Abinadi was delivered up to King Noah, though, but his message was not complete. Next week, we'll hear what the Lord needs the people of Noah to know before they're permitted to end Abinadi's life. Sister Scriptorians, this week, be still. Reflect and then repent. Go to sisterscriptorians.com and download the ponder prompt that you can use as a journal entry to write down the feelings of your heart, where you'd like to change, and what change you desire to make. Allow repentance to be your deliverance from bondage and affliction.